Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. All of television history is contained within the box of delights. It was happening in front of us. Incredible. In our living rooms. It was amazing. Guests pick their favourite television moment. And tell us why they love it. And is this the episode where Daisy's just been for the interview at the Woman's Magazine? Flaps. That's it, Flaps. Yeah. Named one of Radio Time's best podcasts of the year. I don't understand people who don't see the joy in drawing the curtains, mug of hot chocolate and something nice on TV. Like, what could be nicer than that? Than having a snuggle. Exactly. Nostalgia in bite-sized chunks. Box of delights from Great Big Owl. The following podcast is a member of the Great Big Owl family. This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you like listening to? Um, <laughs> chart music. <laughs> chart music. It's Thursday night. It's about ten minutes past the eight. It's Valentine's Day 1985. It's Simon Bates and Janice Long. And this episode of Top of the Pops, so far, is way better than it has any right to be. Hey up, you pop-crazed youngsters, and welcome to part three of episode 52 of Chart Music. I'm your host, Al Needham, by my side are my main dogs, Neil Kulkarner and Taylor Parks. And let's not fanny about, let's get stuck in, and let's see if this episode can keep up the pace. The lady you saw there is one of those ladies who, when she's out of work, does singing telegrams. Okay, let's go to America with Jonathan King and look at the US Billboard chart. Bates, still alone, reveals that he's been doing his usual sniffing around the female singer's routine when he tells us, for no reason at all, that Katrina Phillips is, quote, one of those ladies who, when she's out of work, does singing telegrams. Oh, yeah. The fuck is that all about? I, I doubt. I'm dubious about that entire thing, to be honest with you. Mm. I mean, he might as well have said, when Katrina isn't wasting her life with her delusions of being a pop star, she can't even get a proper job and is reduced <laughs> to doing that. <laughs> He's, he's, he's a one for that, isn't he? He always wants to drop a bit of goss in, doesn't he, Bates? Yeah, and a hint of a mild rebuke, really, because she's not a proper lady and she's not wearing a dress or something. I don't know. Uh, well, I, I'm surprised I didn't ask her what, um, what football team she supported. That's his usual routine, isn't it? <laughs> to confuse her, yeah. He then tells us it's time to go over to America, where Jonathan King is waiting to tell us what's in the billboard chart. Is he in America, though? Hmm. By this time, Top of the Pops is dispense with sending a camera crew to follow 
him around America. And you know, they've just plonked him in front of a video screen that might as well be on the other side of the studio. Well, he is on the other side. If, unless somebody no. has pointlessly recreated the Top of the Pop studio in New York for no reason <laughs> yeah. at all. Like, like no, he's just Bridge. He's there. He's just He was there earlier in the day before the audience came in, mm-hmm. which is probably a good thing. We've already covered Jonathan King in chart music number 38 when he was the puppet master behind Saccharin and their cover of Sugar Sugar. Since then, he set up UK records and scored a few more chart hits, was one of the original backers in the Rocky Horror Show, signed up 10cc, ran in the Epson and Ewell by-election under the Royalist Party, then left the music business in 1979, claiming that much of the charts was decided by promotion and marketing, and relocated to New York, where he commenced a media career as a talk show host on WMCA Radio. He also linked up with the BBC, presented a weekly slot called A King in New York for Radio 1, Postcard from America for Radio 4, acting as the Radio 1 correspondent for the 1980 presidential election and breaking the news in the UK of John Lennon's assassination. In November of 1981, as part of the Yellow Hurl relaunch, King became a regular fixture on Top of the Pops after he approached them and pointed out that so many American hit records weren't repeating their success over here, and somehow that was wrong. So he was given a slot, usually filmed from different cities, to briefly run down the American charts, foist foreigner and sticks onto the kids, usually eat a hot dog because that was American and gave Top of the Pops the opportunity to bung loads of clips of videos on. This segment became so effective that King is credited with getting Africa by Toto to number three in February of 1983, nine months after it originally flopped over here. Thanks, mate. And (laughs) King was rewarded later that year with the BBC Two series Entertainment USA. By this time, the segment has been pared down to a straightforward US chart rundown, but this very month, King has been signed up by Kelvin McKenzie to write the weekly column Bizarre USA for the Sun, and is working on the forthcoming first series of No Limit, the BBC Two youth programme, which comes out at the end of the year. Hmm. Oh. Jesus, this cunt. I mean, even as a kid, <laughs> right? King's importance and the way that everyone kind of kowtowed to him and had to work around him and he kept getting incorporated and involved in modern pop shows was a total mystery to me. Um, I mean, exemplified actually by No Limits, which comes out later in the year and the creepy kind of Svengali role he played in that, mentioned but never seen. Um, I'm still in love with Jenny Powell. But he creeped me out from the fucking off. <laughs> that combination of the smirk, the camp buffoonery, the wacky clothes and the colourful glasses. I mean, given the school that I went to, my um, non-star was actually pretty well attuned by 85. And he just always sent <laughs> really creepy signals. I mean, I'm doubtful always anyway of anyone who takes such pride in being an irritant, especially when their supposed, I don't know, dissidence to the mainstream is entirely propped up and sustained by support from that mainstream. He's a Wally and a Pratt, mm. and he's proud to be a Pratt. Mm. And he's got that supposed outsider status, even though he's writing a, he's going to be writing a weekly pop column for The Sun, which get, which starts picking up letters mm. of complaint pretty instantly. He, you know, so he's the beadle mm. of pop. Um, and I don't yes. find his... Uh. I don't find his shit... I don't know. Don't you know? When I read Jonathan King interviews, as I have done in preparation for this, 
it staggers me sometimes how he was tolerated for so long. Mm. I mean, you know, he, he wants to bring out the Yorkshire Ripper's phone things out in 1979. Yes. Oh, yeah. To put the Yorkshire Ripper tapes on a single and sell it for 33p a copy under the title The Ripper's Speech. Yeah, on blood red vinyl. On blood red vinyl, yes. yeah. And and all of these things. I mean, I don't know. He says he's got a strange sense of humour. And, um, you know, there's repeated quotes throughout his interviews that are just vile. I suppose this is what a Cambridge student makes a pop. Um, mm. He loathes pop, fundamentally, from the beginning. Yes. And, and, you know, he wants to keep its ambitions in check, in a sense. So everything he does is kind of cutting pop off at the heels. But... He always keeps for himself that get-out clause that chances and cunts always use, which, which is, it's all a bit silly. It's all a bit of a laugh. I was just taking the piss. Yeah. You know, uh, but in combination with that, he also has, uh, beyond everything else, he, he's, he's Aldridge Pryor, hopeless liar. Um, mm. The way he looks at pop history... You know, when you read interviews with him, he, he's talking about, like, I don't know, he was the one who introduced the sort of bombardier jacket to John Lennon, and that's why Sergeant Pepper yes. looks the way it is. You know, oh, and he yeah. was the one who spotted Mark Bolan, and he was the one who spotted Bowie. And and his yeah. parts of Top of the Pops were always, a, a, as a watcher of it with my sister, and, and as a talker about Top of the Pops afterwards in the playground, his parts of Top of the Pops were fucking hated by everyone. Yes. Um, not just smash hits readers, everyone. And this avowed justification he had for that bit, that he wanted to bridge some sort of gap, that these American records by these poor, you know, impoverished artists like fucking Toto yes. um, deserved a shout over it. I just do not get that at all. No. Um, so I've, I've always had major, major... I mean, I, I'd be doubtful of anyone who didn't have major problems with Jonathan King. But um, this would have been a section where I perhaps might have walked out of the room because even at that time, at the young age of 12, you could tell he was a wrong gun um, yeah. from the off, you know. Well, the the first thing to say here is that the transition from a shot of Simon Bates yeah. standing there with a ham mic to a shot of Jonathan King standing there with a ham yeah. mic yes. on almost the same spot at a different <laughs> time of day, I reckon is yeah. really troubling because they are superficially similar. Yes. Mm, like mm. they're both men in their thirties, late thirties, who look and seem a great deal older. Um, big specs, side parted dark hair, they're wearing mostly pale colours, loose cut mm. jacket, old fashioned oily media delivery, albeit in different styles. It but it's a peculiar Visual shift, mm. which could not be more flattering to Simon Bates. Yeah. Right. <laughs> we all know by now that Simon Bates was foolish but not dangerous. Mm. And yet, such is the enmity we've all felt towards Simon Bates, historically aggravated beyond all reason by this podcast yeah. uh, and the last few years of forced exposure to mm. his nonsensical baritone bullshit. We... <laughs> lose our sense of proportion and it's a real wake-up call seeing this dark metamorphosis in front of you yes you think hang on a minute really Bates is just a stuffed elephant with a a ring in the back that you pull (laughs) to make him speak but that that's a Mm. bit broken right he seems completely harmless and almost but not quite lovable once you seen this direct a b comparison with pure evil Mm. it's like (laughs) Jonathan King is Simon Bates, if he dropped his soul 
in a puddle of syphilitic piss and then tried to dry it off with a hairdryer stuffed full of typhoid shit. (laughs) Or Simon Bates' Jonathan King, if he spent too long in a detoxification chamber and came out all spongy (laughs) and babbling (laughs) and inert. And it's not something I ever wanted to see. Like how this section is not something anybody wanted to see. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's like seeing Peter Webb being interviewed on Match of the Day, then all of a sudden the Yorkshire Ripper pops up. (laughs) (laughs) The other massively offensive thing about this segment is, you know, just like in the 70s when the bunged on Lulu and Scylla when they were nowhere near the charts, Top of the Pops is once again giving airtime to bands and artists that haven't earned their spot. Yeah. Well, they're they're rigging the charts, aren't they? Mm. I mean, it's like I don't know the nine o'clock news looking at their bulletin for tonight and thinking, oh, there's there's not enough death in this, and getting Kenneth Kendall to go out and bomb a tube station. <laughs> you know, that's wrong. <laughs> the role of top of the pops is supposed to be to look at the reflection in the river of pop, yeah. not chuck a shopping trolley into it. <laughs> and I don't think people now would fully understand why this bit seemed so objectionable no, they wouldn't. at the time. They wouldn't. Apart from, obviously, the presence of Jonathan King. But mm. it was, right? I mean, Atlanticism was not a new thing in British pop, obviously. Mm. like The back and forth to, uh, between Britain and America is a massive part of our pop music development. But around 1985... There was that kind of obliterative Americanization going on. Yeah. Well, that's yeah, how yeah. it felt, like this one-way mm-hmm. cultural traffic. And suddenly the, the musical or even the, like the broader cultural relationship that Britain had with the USA, which used to be about yearning repressed Brits reaching towards something bigger and mm. wilder and, and freer. Now it was like it was about shutting down all the awkward or uncommercial or unprofitable parts of British culture and subtlety and, you know, irony and idiosyncrasy and all the things the country actually does well and resetting British culture or resetting the the country culturally the same way it was being reset economically, you know. And Mm. these are the things that people always say about Americanisation, but it was really strong around this time and it was felt all the more keenly because of the political situation. And the reaction against it was really strong. It was like the pop charts were a, a cultural green and common, you know. Mm. It's like, <laughs> it, it was everywhere. This idea only American stuff was any good. Yeah. Even, even the Weetabix yeah. went b-boy. Yes, they that? did. I mean, in the, in the, the feeblest, soggy-in-the-milk kind of way. But, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was a real sign. Fucking Quizlins. Yeah, I mean, th- this isn't exchange, you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Obviously, this isn't exchange. This this is Jonathan King saying American music is superior yes. to British music in a sense. It's more serious. It's all about good songs. Yes. And that's because, I mean, as a kind of, yeah, and as a kind of vaguely transatlantic soul as he is... You know, his understanding of Britishness is what gives us, I don't know, records like Jump Up and Down and Wave Your Knickers in you. Yes. That's the way he (laughs) sees Britishness. He sees it as this, I don't know, yeah, these saucy postcard kind of cliches. Yeah. Um, And he always has. And and that kind of cultural imperialism that we're talking about in 1985, he's definitely on the American side of it. You know, don't forget, in 1980, he's reporting on the election, the US election for Radio 1. (laughs) <laughs> you know, he's been doing this for a while. Not just, you know, he's running in the Epsom by-election and all that. He's obviously an avowed Thatcherite. 
But yeah, that's all this section ever seemed to come across like. Grow up, England. This is proper music. Well, fuck yeah. you. This is how a lot of people fell into the Morrissey hole, I think. Mm. Yeah. Because suddenly that yeah, yeah. sort of soft English nationalism felt almost defiant. Yes. Like, mm. like we weren't an imperial power anymore. We were facing this huge external existential threat. You know, mm-hmm. so to be over deliberately British in taste and manner uh, became almost like an underdog thing for otherwise liberal English people uh, who mm. started feeling towards America the same disobedient pride and resentment that like Scots, Irish, and Welsh had always felt towards England. You know, mm. Mm. Yeah. but you have to be careful with that stuff. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. And so, and yeah, as we'll see later. So as is the style. Round about this time, we're going to get clips from four videos. You know, America, 1985, so Cameo, Zap, Schooly D, DMC. Oh, this this will be good. And look at the brand new American chart this week. And REO Speedwagon have their first hit in a long, long while. It's a great song called I Can't Fight the Feeling. Champaign, Illinois in 1967, REO Speedwagon took their name from a prototype pickup truck which was manufactured from 1915 to the early 50s and they started life as a covers band at local student bars. After signing with Epic in 1971, they spent most of the 70s as a moderately successful rock albums band, but it wasn't until 1980 when they softened the fuck up that they made it big in America, with their 10th LP, High Infidelity, and the lead-off track, Keep On Loving You, getting to number one in the US LP and singles chart. In the UK, Keep On Loving You got to number seven for two weeks in 1981 and the follow-up, Take It On The Run, got to number 19 in August of that year, but they were never heard of again in the UK until now. (laughs) This is the follow-up to I Don't Wanna Know, which did fuck all over here. It's the second cut from their 12th LP, Wheels Are Turning. It's currently number seven on the Billboard chart and nowhere in the charts over here because we're a fucking proper country. <laughs> so, yeah, here we go. Fucking Oreo Speedwagon. I mean, the, the, the video uh, was directed by John Jobson, who started as a cameraman at Formula One races and worked on the documentary film Speed Fever, the film which features that fucking appalling accident in the 1977 South African Grand Prix where uh, uh, a marshal runs across the track mm-hmm. and clips a driver with a fire extinguisher and kills him and then he's flipped up in the air with such force that it rips his overalls off which was used in uh, the advert for the film in Japanese television uh. and he's got another car crash to deal with here hasn't uh, he yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, we only get a little blast of the video, so we don't apprehend the full yeah, horror. Yeah, but a little blast of Oreo Speedwagon goes a long, long oh, way. I mean, I do recommend, actually, people do watch the full video, because this, is, this isn't just Asian Wedding Video. This is Asian Wedding Video Vanden Pla edition. It's, <laughs> it's fucking amazing. Uh, you know, flying candles, teddy bears, and that a- ending where the, the aged protagonist finally faces the black door of death, um, mm. which is always fun, but fucking yeah. hell. 
This stuff. And realises, oh my God, I've spent so much time listening to fucking REO Speedwagon. Do you know who to blame for this, though? For this Go being on. a hit? Brummies. Um, really? I would say so. Right. This is 85. This is peak um, leather ampersand lace years. Um, <laughs> by, by which I mean those comps were really popular and you get all these kind of, you know, stuff like this was indulged by older metalheads, I'm convinced. The split mm. was in. So you had these old Priest Maiden fans. Now, you had a yeah. choice as a metal fan in 85. You were either going to go underground, in a sense, and start listening to Metallica and Thrash and all that sort of stuff, mm. or you were going to latch onto anything that still contained the signifiers of rock music, yeah. long hair, denim, etc., even if the music was transparently sort of soft as shite. So this song is the spiritual twin of a few records, actually. Uh, Foreigners, I want to know what love is. I'd mm. say it's the spiritual ancestor of White Snakes, Here I Go Again as well. Mm. It's one of those sort of revelations of tenderness, as if it's surprising from a rock band, that, yeah. hey, we look like, you know, one-waving, tit-tearing motherfuckers, but we've got soft, damp parts that warrant inspection. Um, <laughs> but it's yeah, it's not a great one. It's not a great one. Uh, it's one of those songs like Toto's Africa, actually which we will probably be told in this day and age oh it's classic it's great classic it's great well no it ain't and i remember i was there at the time it was terrible and this wasn't really played by rock djs you wouldn't find this being played at a rock club and you wouldn't find this being played by by tommy vance or alan freeman on the radio no you know so yeah it i blame the the leather ampersand lace years and i blame brummies for that fundamentally um because those were the fuckers who you see them like four years before this um, mm. propping a pint of Brew 11 on their belly, putting Motorhead on the jukebox. In 1985, they're putting shit like this on the jukebox. So, yeah. I mean, it doesn't even qualify as soft rock, does it? It's, it, it's shale. <laughs> it's funny, though, well, it, how yeah. often you hear songs by immaculately produced American bands that can all play really well and they're mm. consummate professionals. And it sounds like the fifth song you ever wrote when you were 14. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's amazing how many of these superstar, serious musicians, uh, they've got like the compositional nous of a kid putting <laughs> stickle bricks together. You know what I mean? It's, this song is like... It's like he's written in a music class at school. Yeah. The shots of the band as well in the video. Yeah. It's, it's all a load of bollocks about the circle of life. Yeah, yeah. And, and obviously dead expensive. Mm. So you get some floating babies, you get women with kind of like vortexes for faces appearing at the window. Mm. And, and there's one bit that where some bloke's about to propose to his girlfriend, but if, before he does that, a load of butterflies come out of his crotch. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> All that's there to distract us from the performance bit, which is just a, a fucking dad band. Yeah. It's like, you yeah. know, you've gone to, to someone's 21st birthday do, and they've gone, oh, he, he, he doesn't know this is going to happen, but he's, his dad and his mates have uh, got together to form a band, and oh. they're going to do a gig, <laughs> and you've got to sit through it. And they're going to do a cover of Oreo Speedwagon. I don't think they'd be dads, though. They, they, they just look like social inadequates. They, they, yeah. they, they're well-dressed social inadequates because they've got ready for a video, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> and they look awful, don't they? They look fucking terrible. I mean, the only thing you can take away from this video to sustain you through watching it is that when you notice it, you can't get it out of your head. The lead singer, Kevin Cronin, is the dead spit of Norman Scott, isn't it? <laughs> 
<laughs> oh god yeah norman scott with a bit more hair and when yeah. you've got that into your head that if, if you start watching it and going this song's being performed by jeremy thorpe's spurned lover uh, who's still waiting mm. for his national insurance card it, it just makes it 50 million times better yeah bunnies can't and won't fight this feeling anymore <laughs> The, the, these people would look would look okay, right? In grainy sort of sixty millimeter film with flares on and looking a bit dirty and grimy, playing at some festival, some Greasers festival in San Diego in nineteen seventy three. Mm. But in nineteen eighty five, because they've been cleaned up slightly and they've mm. been put in new denim and horrible kind of rugby shirt type shit. Yes, um, they oh, they just look appalling. They look awful. I mean, yeah, Neil, you were saying that this was an older bloke rock music, but I I recall that the posh grebs on the nice estate on the other side of the school mm. you know they'd have their neatly ironed untainted denim jackets with rainbow and acdc patches mm. but there was always room for an oreo speed wagon patch on there as well Fucking hell, man. i know i know <laughs> i know I- i'll tell you who this is aimed at jane isn't it it's the janes of the world <laughs> <laughs> It really is. Yeah, yeah. It really is. And I just listen to it. I just think, poor fucking Chris. He's got Jane in his bedroom, and he's going to have to listen to to this kind of shit in order to get his feel. (laughs) (laughs) My favourite bit in the video is where you have a shot of a window with all these symbols of the suburban straight world man floating by. Like, uh, there's a Barclay card, an Amex card, a dollar bill. Well, you know, there's all the same thing, really, isn't it? Um, a house, <laughs> a car, uh, a wedding couple, like off a wedding cake. It's like, yeah, okay, yeah. we get it. Cuddly and, toy. Yeah, and a maraca for some reason. Yeah. I don't know if they're thinking specifically of Davy Jones, um, in which case <laughs> they should have added a horse and a bottle of scotch. But uh, they just saw past the window as though, you know, as though on the Kansas hurricane. And it's like, mm. you're supposed to think, oh, life... Oh, life goes so fast. It's so grey and predictable. Mm. Like, (laughs) in a very real sense, REO Speedwagon are a howling protest against the blanding effects of age and expectation. Mm. I mean, the Mm. other thing about Kevin Cronin as well, he's got an appalling case of American R, hasn't he? Because he always sings ever. Mm. And Mm. that got on my tits. Got on my tits before in the early 80s when they had two hit singles. And just mm. when you think you're rid of the cunts, here they are again, marching back triumphantly. <laughs> Anything else to say about this? No, can we move on, please? Yeah. So, two weeks later, Can't Fight This Feeling entered the UK chart at number 100, beginning a slow pull upward, which culminated seven weeks later with them getting to number 16, by which time it had spent three weeks as the American number one, usurping this week's chart topper, and being usurped itself by One More Night by Phil Collins. The follow-up, One Lonely Night, failed to chart over here, and they were done with the British charts forevermore. However, in 2019, Can't Fight This Feeling was covered by Bastille for the Christmas advert for Posh Woolworths okay, now. to accompany some shit about a dragon. I don't know. I've okay, never Jesus. saw it. Ow, ow. You know, you just mentioned the records that replaced this at number one and stuff. Yes. I just wanted to say, one of the most... Obvious things to any pop fan in 1985 who was British 
I always used to think this, and I'm sure you did too. You used to think the fucking American charts are fucking rubbish. Yes. Um, they, yes. In comparison to ours, they were shit. Yes. So the BBC giving Jonathan King this fucking five-minute advert yes. um, for the American charts was always fucked. Sorry, I just wanted to say that. No, 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 that's fine. <laughs> And it got to number 39 that December. Fucking hell. That's that's how shit this fucking unwiped arse of a century is. We fucking want cover versions of Oreo fucking Speedwagon. Yeah, but come on. Because they remind you of Christmas right away, don't they? Or done by milk-faced poshos as an advert. Why do kids nowadays like this shit? What the fuck is wrong with them? (laughs) Slight generalisation there, Al. What does your daughter think of Oreo Speedwagon, Neil? Um, Sophia thinks, right. I asked her deliberately and specifically about this song. Mm. Um, Can't Fight This Feeling. I said, so what do you think of uh, Oreo Speedwagon's Can't Fight This Feeling? She was very matter-of-fact about it. She just said, um, yeah, it's quite an effective rock ballad. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) And that was it. But she don't listen to it. Good. She don't sit around listening to Journey or any of that. Thank fuck. She's got Finn Lizzy albums to catch up with. Uh, She's all right. Good for her. Next! <laughs> At the number one heartthrob in America is the lead singer of Van Halen, David Lee Roth. He's got a solo hit single at the moment with a great video, California Girls. <laughs> Indiana in 1954, David Lee Roth was transplanted to California in his early teens and linked up with Eddie and Alex Van Halen at Pasadena City College. After a period as the lead singer of the Red Bull Jets in the early 70s, he joined Eddie and Alex's power trio, Mammoth, which changed its name to Van Halen in 1974 when a more successful band started using the name. After they were approached by Gene Simmons of Kiss in 1976, when he was trying to poach Eddie Van Halen for his rubbish band, he helped them work up a demo tape and they were signed to Warner Brothers in 1977. In early 1985, Van Halen had become one of the biggest rock acts in America, earning a spot in the Guinness Book of Records for the highest paid gig when they netted $1.5 million for a 90-minute set at the Us Festival in San Bernardino in 1983, but over here they were an album's band with one top 40 hit, Jump, which got to number 7 in March of 1984, and a guest appearance by Eddie Van Halen in Beat It. However, a severe personality clash between Roth, who wanted a poppier sound, and the rest of the band to stop being such custard gannets, and Eddie Van Halen, who was all about the rock and liked his drugs, led to Roth considering a solo career. This is being promoted as the lead-off single from the EP Crazy From The Heat, which came out last month. It's a cover of the Beach Boys single, which got to number 26 in September of 1965, but is best known to the youth of 1985 as the tune from the British Caledonian Airline adverts. It's just entered our chart this week at number 84 and is currently at number 10 over there. (sighs) Fucking hell. Thanks for the contribution. David, <laughs> it's, this is one of those records that no one ever thinks about because, no. you know, why would you? It's only saving grace is that it's one of the more ignorable records <laughs> of the 1980s. But when you actually are 
forced to stop and contemplate the concept and the reality almost knocks the breath out of you how Mm. unjustifiably shit this is and i'm all for being disrespectful to rock history but it's not even that if anything it's nauseatingly respectful Mm. even as it smears its own waste product all across the the beautiful young face of the original and yeah i mean it's got it's got no artistic purpose no practical use um they would have said at the time Here's David Lee Roth with an update of the Beach Mm. Boys classic. Mm. I mean, it's an update of the original record in the way that a toilet full of warm shit is an update of steak and chips. (laughs) (laughs) Why would would anyone bother making, buying, or ever listening to this this single? Imagine if you were David Lee Roth, right, and it's the mid-80s, and it's Monday morning. Like, what you wake up, what can you do that day? You think of all the possibilities Mm. spread like a hand of cards and then you contemplate the thought of going in and recording a a worthless karaoke version of California. Why would you do it? Mm. Even if you weren't David Lee Roth and it wasn't the (laughs) mid-80s, what possible reason could there be? Making this record is like cutting off your own cock, putting it through a blender and then injecting it into your own eyeball. It's like you could do it, but Mm. why? Why would you do it? Why? No, there's no point, is it? Well, it's a video, isn't it? Uh, this is this is the only concession to satisfaction in this episode of Top of the Pops. Yeah, yeah maybe. Uh, uh, directed by Pete Angelus, who did a stupidly massive light show for Van Halen's 1980 World Tour and went on to do their art direction. And uh, yeah, he had he he edited their video for Jump and uh, went on to be the manager of the Black Crow. So. But it, even dads wouldn't get satisfaction from this, though, as as far as I'm concerned. It, it it's so. Mm. I mean, the the point is this: the, it's Benny Hill without the subtlety and panache, isn't it? Well, this is it, Benny Lee Hill. <laughs> <laughs> it, it it entirely fits in with Jonathan King's version or vision, rather, of what classes as pop entertainment. I mean, it's yeah. successful. Right? That's his first criteria. It's American. Mm. That's another criteria. It's a good song, because obviously King always goes on about good song. There's a video in which sex is giggled at and kept at a giggly distance and dealt with through stock mm. characters and stereotypes, which is all King could ever deal with uh, when it came to portrayals of sex. And beyond that, it's a cartoonish kind of demonstration of just American might, you know, when it comes to money and pop music and pop videos. You're not really meant yeah. to listen to it. You're just meant to goggle at the expense involved. Yes. But, I mean, it's telling, actually. I didn't know that thing about Kiss. Uh, because, you know, I've interviewed a lot of shit metal bands over the years, American metal bands, and virtually all of them, especially American ones, have cited Kiss as a big influence and Van Halen as a big influence. And these are both bands that just passed Britain by to a large extent. Yeah. Um, um, but Solo Roth is entirely inexcusable he's copying the kind of loony grinning madness of ozzy osbourne but he's got just got total steely mercenary control over it all it's almost as if sharon osbourne Mm. put on ozzy's wig (laughs) (laughs) you know it's a weird thing um this is an inexcusable Mm. record i mean i've never actually been that fond of california girls as a song anyway um but Mm. yeah just steamingly pointless but it, it what king 
sees this is this is the best pop can get you know and this demonstrates his contempt for pop music and and just what a shame this wasted 30 seconds of this um is in top of the yeah. pops the women involved in this video they're ridiculously aerobicized mm. and uh i mean i was convinced there was some bare breasts in this video when i watched it originally mm. uh but it, it, no it's it's a flesh tone bikini yeah 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 so yeah there we go and the lyric of the song, I mean, it's, it's not it's not his fault, but the, the lyric always struck me as being a bit thick because <laughs> it's basically saying, you know, oh, there's there's loads of women all around the world and they're nice, but they're not a patch on the local ones. But I, I wish they all lived round my way. <laughs> so what 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 are you going on about, Brian? Oddly enough, I think Carl Wilson actually does backing vocals on this. Does he? I, I could be wrong about that. I probably need to check. Sorry, fact checker. We need a fact checker on that. But yeah. I've got a feeling he did. Anything else to say about this? No. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually looking right now at a photo of Dave Lee Roth and Carl Wilson next to each other. And yeah, background vocals by Beach Boy Carl Wilson, along with Christopher Cross. Fucking hell. See, Mike Love was kept well out of it, though. <laughs> probably, Probably for the best. So the following week, California girls moved up 12 places to number 72 and a week later got to number 68, its highest position. By which time, California girls had got to number three in America and Roth had left Van Halen. The follow-up, a mashup of Just a Gigolo and I Ain't Got Nobody, failed to chart in the UK, although after teaming up with Steve Vai, he'd have two more minor top 40 hits in the 90s with Just Like Paradise and A Lil' Ain't Enough. He spent the mid-90s as a lounge act in Las Vegas before briefly rejoining Van Halen in 1996 and then trained as an emergency medical technician in New York before rejoining Van Halen again in 2012. Trolled from Great Big Owl. Tracy Ann Oberman interviews celebrities about their experiences of abuse online. If you want to sit in a room and talk to another fellow sitting in his room and have an argument, that's fine too. Or you can not do that. On trains... I had to get on the train and this woman hit me in the back and said, you're an arsehole. And on a bus. And I think it's weird that you would suggest that a woman is so ugly to get sex when you basically look like a potato. (laughs) All that and more. That's Trolled with Tracy Ann Oberman from Great Big Al. Out now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Paul and Oates follow up their number one with Out of Touch with their new single, Method of Modern Love. 
In 1970, Daryl Hall and John Oates had previously first met in 1967 at a Battle of the Bands competition in Philadelphia when they both hid in a lift when a gang war broke out in the audience and people started shooting each other. After discovering they were both studying at the nearby Temple University, they started dossing about with each other, eventually sharing a flat. And after Oates returned from an extended stay in Europe, they teamed up, signing to Atlantic Records. After signing to RCA in 1975, they released the LP Daryl Hall and John Oates, notable for their first hit single, Sarah Smile, and a cover done by David Bowie's stylist where they took Homer Simpson's makeup gun full in the face. <laughs> While they became an ongoing chart concern in the US, the nearest they got to our top 40 was when She's Gone got to number 41 in October of 1976 and Running From Paradise got to number 41 in July of 1980. But they finally went over the top in November of that year when Kiss On My List got to number 33. By February of 1985, they'd been a regular-ish participant in the hit parade, scoring four top 40 hits, including I Can't Go For That, No Can Do, which got to number eight in February of 1982, and Maneater, which got to number six in November of the same year. This single, the second cut from the 1984 LP Big Bam Boom, is the follow-up to Out of Touch, which got to number one for two weeks in America last December, but only got to number 48 over here last October. It's currently at number five on the other side of the Atlantic, and over here it's jumped up 12 places this week from number 66 to number 54. Yes, so this one... um, Directed by Jeff Stein, who got his first credit as a writer on the Who film, The Kids Are All Right. And then he wrote the American police sitcom Barney Miller, which was uh, a favourite of the uh, Aventis ITV mm. graveyard song. Uh, yeah. uh, his first music video was Rebel Yell for Billy Idol. But his video for Dancing in the Dark was scrapped halfway through the shoot. And he was kicked out in favour of Brian De Palma. But uh, here he is. Back in the saddle. Making a very odd, curious video for a very odd, curious song. By this point, we have to talk about the people who actually make the videos because, you know, they've become absolutely crucial at this point, haven't they? Yeah. I mean, this is a big production. It's hella expensive for a song that takes over a minute to deliver a hook. Oh, yes. Um, but Hall & Oates are odd. Anyway, the Steely Dan with hits. I mean, yes. th- and this is an odd record. Odd, curious record, this. But I found it strangely compelling. Um, even though it's only on for a little bit. And it wasn't just the immediate spot of the classic 80s uh, video cliche, drummer with massive outsized beaters. Mm. Um, Yeah, but um, an odd record. That's nothing compared to the last video for Out of Touch, where they're trapped in a massive drum kit. And the drummer, he's got drumsticks the size of a lamppost. (laughs) It's it's incredible. I'll have to watch that. But yeah, Hall & Oates, an odd little band with this odd, big, big video. Uh, I dug out the full-length video because I wanted to experience the song more, and I'm not sure I'm satisfied with it. Um, Mm. But um, there's curious pleasures to be had in that odd chorus and the strange sounds that they're making. Um, So, yeah, Hall & Oates are always intriguing. uh, One of those bands, and I know I frequently say this on chart music, where I should have a night falling down a Hall & Oates 
rabbit hole and see mm. what I'll come out with. There's a lot of their shit I like. I love Sarah's smile. And, you know, I can't go for that as a tune. Oh, yeah. I kind of only know the singles, you know what I mean? Yeah, but this period, Hall & Oates, is a peculiar prospect, isn't it? I mean, they're like, yeah. they're yeah. like the Go West who had already gone West <laughs> and got scurvy on the trail. I mean, they're better than, they're better than Go West, but you know, so, so is gout. Um, <laughs> but it's, I don't know, this, this is the thing with this segment, and it's not really fair to uh, target Hall & Oates specifically with this, mm. but there used to be this fairly widely held belief, which the internet has now blasted into irrelevance, that you should make a little bit of room in the mainstream and potentially the marketplace for the avant-garde or the experimental or the brand new, Mm. even if it wasn't what was selling because it was good for people Mm. and it was good for the health of the culture. And besides, it gave people a chance to see and hear things they'd never experienced and wouldn't otherwise see or hear. And who knows, uh, maybe that would change and enrich somebody's life. So, for instance, you might dump one of the top 40 hits from Top of the Pops, just one, Mm. And give that time to something a bit weird or unusual, mm. because that's how art and life can prosper. Uh, but instead, here we've lost one top 40 hit that people might actually have wanted to hear, mm. and given that time to haul a note, <laughs> because uncool American men in their 30s <laughs> like them, so you should too. Mm. Yeah. Like top of the fucking pops. Yeah. The last time, you remember the last time they tried this was Hootie and the Blowfish. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, they won't be trying that again. <laughs> I mean, I have absolutely no recollection of this single. No. Um, it, it, back in I 1985. And the only thing I know from it is uh, M-E-T-H-O-D, man. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. But I I didn't even know that Method Man, you know, I'd never heard this song before so or this chorus. Notes. Yeah, I mean. No, Hollow Notes have given much to hip hop. They have, a lot of samples, say a lot no of go, loops. Say No Go, Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I, I had never heard this before, uh, being asked to watch it for um, chart music, which strikes yeah. me as odd. I mean, they were big Hall & Oates, so why yes. didn't I hear this record? Perhaps yeah. there's a reason for that. Perhaps it was a hit in America and not in the UK, and perhaps it should have fucking stayed that way. Mm. Um, I don't see the urge, like, these records are burning away in Jonathan King's consciousness. We deserve to hear them. They're going to yeah. improve our lives. Not exactly. Uh, no. From, from, the, from the standpoint of, you know, 40-odd years on, it's a curious little thing to look at. But at the time, mm. did we need to know about this record by the multi-million platinum selling Hall & Oates that wasn't getting a fair shout somehow? Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's it's yeah. odd. I remember it, but I remember finding it annoying because it's spelt out method of, of love. love. yeah. And it's called Method of Modern Love. <laughs> and it's like, come on. Yeah. Obviously, they couldn't have spelt the whole title out or it just... People would have thought there was something wrong yeah. with the with the radio. Yeah, if Paul Weller can spell apocalypse properly, <laughs> yeah, I bet he bet he required a dictionary for that. <laughs> no, but it's do you know what I mean? It just it just seemed wrong to me. Mm. It's like either either go big or don't. One of the uh, problems that Hall and Oates had is by this time they look like your dad's mates <laughs> who yeah. run a garage well, or something. I mean, Daryl Hall is. He is Lenny out of Laverne and Shirley, isn't he? With <laughs> <laughs> his quiff. He's, he's losing his sharpness, I think, at this point, isn't he? He's looking a bit more rocky. Yes. Because he's only got a T-shirt on. He's not got the usual sort of big linen suit on. No. Um, so he's, he's aiming for a different look. But how much longer did Hall & Oates have? 
I can't remember any hits post-85 for them. Well, the following week, Method of Modern Love jumped 13 places to number 41, entered the top 40 a week later, and a month from now it would get to number 21, its highest position. In May of this year, Hall & Oates teamed up with David Ruffin and Eddie Kendricks of The Temptations and recorded Live at the Apollo, which featured one side of soul classics and one side of remakes of Hall & Oates singles. Although they reprised their performance during the Philadelphia wing of Live Aid, the single from the LP, A Night at the Apollo Live, only got to number 58 over here in September of this year, and they never troubled the top 40 in the UK ever again. And according to Sebastian Coe in 2001, Hall and Oates became the same paedophile, <laughs> still at large in the United States, and believed to have a low-status job in the music industry. I'm, you know, this is mad because I'm getting angry again. <laughs> we're just no, we're just the existence of this section in top of the pops. Yeah. Anyway, crack on, crack on. American number one this week, knocking Foreigner off the top spot. It's George Michael and Wham with Careless Whisper. Born in East Finchley in 1963, George Michael is George fucking Michael. This, of course, is billed as his debut solo single, although it was one of the first songs he ever wrote, with Andrew Ridgely getting a songwriting co-credit, and was on Wham's demo tape, along with Wham Rap and Club Tropicana in 1981, which landed them a deal with Inner Vision Records. It's the second cut from the 1984 LP, Make It Big, and this is the follow-up of sorts to Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go, which got to number one for two weeks in June of 1984, and it got to number one in the UK for three weeks in August of last year. While Wham is still very much an ongoing concern, with Last Christmas being flipped for the B-side Everything She Wants is still at number 33 in this week's chart and currently resting between the two legs of their five-month world tour which will take in China in six weeks' time, this single has been billed as by George Michael and Wham in the US and has just knocked I Want to Know What Love Is by Foreigner off the top of the American charts. I mean, this is directed by Duncan Gibbons, who'd already done Just Got Lucky for Joe Boxers, Who's That Girl for Eurythmics, Robert De Niro's Waiting for Banana Roma, and Club Tropicana for Wham. And it's it's got that tang to it, hasn't it? It's George outside, having a bit of fun, then being a bit miserable. Yeah. Shot in Florida, don't you know? Yeah, and uh, didn't it like it blew like twenty million billion dollars or something because he got his hair cut halfway through? Yeah, yeah. The, the shooting was interrupted for a couple of days because George decided he didn't like the way his hair was looking <laughs> and uh, demanded that his sister was flown over to sort it out. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. But this yeah. is the ultimate absurdity, isn't it? In mm. this this yeah. bit, like it's yeah. Well, hey, you fucking turnip-eating British peasants. 
bow yes. down, feel inferior before the mighty US number one. Oh, it's that record you bought last summer that they've only just heard. <laughs> yeah. It's fucking yeah. ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. It's like staying up all night to watch the halftime show for the Super Bowl and then getting a fucking dog-handling display team and a marching band. <laughs> yeah. I would have left the room in anger and confusion at this point. Mm. I've been so angry about it. I mean, I was already angry about this record anyway, not for any particular reason, other than the confusion sown by the credit in that I didn't know where Wham were at this point. You know, Mm. and was this a Wham record? Was this a George Michael record? And then it turns up on a Wham album. So added to that confusion, the fact that we're getting it shoved our way six months after we fucking put it at number one. Yeah. What is the point? King, yeah. you fucking wanker. Stop wasting our time. We don't see that much of the video, so we're not going to talk about it too much. But, you know, you've got to point out that George Michael's got a really impressive beard by this point. Uh, she's called Lisa Stahl, <laughs> who was a cheerleader for the Miami Dolphins and had become a model, and she'd go on mm. to be in Baywatch, now a successful photographer. So, All right. Because they had to reshoot the cutting. Uh, they had to reshoot the kissing scene, didn't they? Because they lost some footage. Yes. Alicia Stars always said that she wasn't she wasn't upset about that at all. No. She loved it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, we well, would be, would you? No, of course not. Uh, but I mean, the problem is with Killer's Whisper from here on in is that every time I see it, and particularly this broadcast on top of the pops, my mind's just going back and imagining a sixteen-year-old Simon Price feeling mm. extremely embarrassed, thinking about his pants tent <laughs> with a treacherous Steph. <laughs> Priapic prize. <laughs> it's always bugged me slightly anyway because I don't like the sax solo. It's one of no. Well, there's a lot of bad sax solos in eighties pop. Uh, it's the Baker Street of the mid eighties, isn't it? Mm. Oh, there's a bloke outside my local. Back when I used to be able to go to my local Tesco's, there was a bloke outside. I think it was last summer, busking with a saxophone before mm-hmm. being told to move on, and all he did was play the sax riff from Careless Whisper and then the sax riff from Baker Street. Oh, no. And then no. go back to the top and start again. That was his whole repertoire. Yeah, it found its American equivalent in the sax solo that you might have forgotten from Kenny Loggins' Danger Zone. Oh. <laughs> but eight is sax. Yeah, always sounds pretty awful, man. Yeah, yeah but it's, other than that, I mean, it's, you know, what, what can you... It's George, he's great. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing yeah. how much stick George used to get. Oh, that's that's mm. not a euphemism, um, <laughs> but it's. Do you remember, like around this time, he, like oh, Wham yeah. would would do minors benefits, and people were astounded. Yes. Like they'd find a way to turn it around yeah. on them. Yeah, like, yeah. Like, all these mm. trendy NME people, you know. They go, oh, they're obviously just after publicity, and it's like, well, hang on, oh, yeah. they were number one in the fucking charts. Mm, they yeah. were always on the front cover of the tabloids, and as far as those papers were concerned, and a lot of Britain doing a minors benefit was like playing a fundraiser for the paedophile information exchange mm. yes. how is this useful publicity you know mm, it was yeah. just assumed back then that if you played commercial music for people to dance and have fun to uh you were obviously a tory yes <laughs> but it's no it's it's great and i forgive him anything for for fast love anyway. yeah yeah mm. that's so one of the that's one of the all-time greats fast record love. yeah and mm. a lyric which i think only a gay man could get away with but I'm glad he did because it means that mm. now it's there for everyone. There's something really defiantly beautiful about that song. This is a miraculous song for a 17-year-old to write. God, yeah. Really. Um, hey, two 17-year-olds. Two 17-year-olds. Sorry, you're quite right. <laughs> it wasn't just a, an act of outrageous generosity <laughs> to put Richard's name on this song, I'm sure. 
I mean, at the time, I kind of resisted it because it sounded like a Sade record on there, but I've grown to love Sade mm. and I've grown to love this record too. Yeah. So Careless Whisper was spent three weeks at number one in America until it was deposed by can't fight this feeling by Oreo Speedwagon. <laughs> by which time Wham had already put out Freedom and Last Christmas over here. The official follow-up, A Different Corner, got to number one in the UK for three weeks in April of 1986, disposing Living Doll by Cliff Richard and the Young Ones before giving way to Rock Me Amadeus by Falco. And he'd go on to have two more solo number ones in 1996 with Jesus to a Child and Fast Love. So, there we go. Loads of white people, one medium-sized hit, one flop, one last minor hit for Hall and & Oates and an old single. There's America for you in 1985. Yeah, cheers for that. King. Yeah, nice one. Cheers, King, you fucking cunt. <laughs> <laughs> he claimed in a recent Smash It's interview that this would be a two-way thing with uh, American acts coming over to Top of the Pops more, seeing the local produce and spreading the word about it. But, you know... I'm pretty sure that Black Lace and Shaking Stevens didn't appear on Solid Gold or American Bandstand. You know what I mean? I mean, that segment, that is four minutes of Top of the Pops airtime. Yeah. And that that's feasibly two singles. Yeah. So let's see what Top of the Pops could have put in there that was just outside the top mm-hmm. 40 and, and, you know, really needed a push. So here I come, Barrington Lever. Mm-hmm. That could have been a top 40 hit. Yeah. Just Another Night, Mick Jagger, number 42. It's it's The Sweet Mix by The Sweet. Breakfast by The Associates, it's, that was at number 49. Well, that'll do. Yeah. Get that in there. Yeah. Mutants in Mega City 1 by The Fink Brothers. <laughs> Fucking hell, Top of the Pops, you cunts. <laughs> you know that one, don't yeah, you? Yeah, I forgot about that. Two mm. Members of Madness. Pretending to be mean and think angel out of Judge Dredd. Mm. And sex over the phone by the village people, which is at number 59. That would have been fucking amazing on top of the pops. Can you imagine Simon Bates introducing that? (laughs) (laughs) However, this appears to be the final appearance of Jonathan King on top of the pops in an official capacity Mm -hmm. for reasons we'll discuss later. And no, that reason isn't one of them. On a balcony next to two very 80s youths, one in a yellow t-shirt festooned with love hearts, the other with a Top of the Pops t-shirt, both sporting luminous fingerless gloves, white trousers and Peter Sarstep belts, blows Jonathan King a kiss and tells us he's such a nice boy. Hmm. She then introduces us to one of the biggest live bands of the moment and mentions that we can go and see them tonight in Anlet. 
But just in case we don't fancy going to Stoke-on-Trent at such short notice, (laughs) here they are in the studio, killing joke with love like blood. Formed from a Melody Maker advert in Notting Hill in 1978, Killing Joke started their own label, Malicious Damage, a year later and put out the EP Turn to Red, which was championed by John Peel and led to a deal with EG Records with distribution by Polydor. They made their first appearance in the charts in 1981, when Follow the Leaders got to number 55 in May of that year, and a year later they made their first appearance on Top of the Pops when Empire Song was perched at number 43. But despite, or maybe because of, being introduced by Garth Crooks, it slipped down the next week. (laughs) Yes, that actually happened. However, lead singer Jazz Coleman wasn't in attendance at the Top of the Pop studio as he had suddenly relocated to Iceland halfway through a UK tour in order to survive the forthcoming apocalypse, only to be deliberately run over by someone in a Land Rover. (laughs) When he returned to the UK, the band was reformed and their next five singles skulked around the mid-reaches of the Top 100. This is the second single from their fifth LP, Nighttime, which comes out at the end of the month, and is the follow-up to A New Day, which got to number 56 in July of 1984. It entered the top 40 last week at number 32, and this week it's jumped eight places to number 24. Well, chaps, killing joke. Mm -hmm. I always lump them in with New Model Army and bands of that ilk, and looking back and looking at this, I wonder why. I don't know. I didn't know what to make of them. Yeah, I mean, I didn't know what to make of them, I remember, at the time. But actually, this disappearance and this single, this was a a, a real... It was an earthquake moment for me. Um, Mm -hmm. It was a a kind of revelation as a a fan of old rock music in 85 that modern rock could sound as dramatic and, and, Mm. you know, could be constructed to build cumulatively like this does and could leave space. But beyond that, beyond anything else, Jazz Coleman just blew my mind because here I am I'm an Asian Mm. kid with no one bar Sheila Tranger really to conjure with in the 80s and Freddie was still Freddie Mercury was still hiding his Asianness but here was someone who looked like my relatives you know what I mean because Jazz I think he's got half Bengal he's got a Bengali mum I think and um, you know he's he looks like my relatives and he's going for it he's being he's being a rock god Yes. Um, so, so when this came out, I remember loving this record. It, it was a big year for air drumming for me with, with knitting needles and chopsticks and stuff. And this yeah. and Slave to the Rhythm were my two sort of tunes. That, that kind of beat and riff combo, it's got this Zeppelin-like togetherness. And honestly, in, in 1985, all it took really was, was one thing tearing your head off to sort of change everything and make you, make you a bit more optimistic and love like blood. Mm. was one of them there's problems it goes on for too long it goes yeah. on for way too long and the band looked pretty awful that white polo neck that the guitarist has got on is particularly nasty mm. um and the jackets uh the big leather jackets that they wear aren't particularly nice they're either. not good and are they they're not great they're not great what um, happens um, to leather jackets in the 80s man it, it, it just <laughs> Fucking stupid. <laughs> just be a leather jacket. I think, I think the, the, the crucial, there was a time when leather jackets stopped being just de rigueur things that all looked the same and yeah. leather fashions started coming in. Yeah. And then you started getting things like leather warehouses, which yes. is a great name for a gay club, actually. But, um, <laughs> you know, you've got a more extensive collection and this is what they're modeling. And, uh, you know, as well with the song, I mean, who knows what it's about, but I, it's glorious. What mm. I particularly liked 
was that you kind of got used to weird bands turning up now and then on top of the pops and just sort of playing to their fans almost yeah. with a smirk on their face um killing joke are playing this kind of quite dark sort of anthemic new wave rock i guess but they're still making the the white high heel crowd move yes um it's like the townies are kind of confronted with something they can't help but physically respond to although yeah like i did probably as a kid i grew bored because it does go on too long mm. but yeah i mean this was an earthquake moment for me in this show but also in 1985 this single in particular it was just oh god rock can be good and not deodorized and poodly and you know it can be mm. it can hit heavy um again so yeah i really like this single at the time and i love this performance too I mean, everyone goes on about Pete Burns, but fucking hell, Jazz Coleman's <laughs> ten times scarier in this. Yeah. yeah. He looks like he's been made from the dissembled body parts of all the members of the Stranglers. <laughs> <laughs> I was never able to work out how serious or how funny mm. uh, this was meant to be, mm-hmm. right? Because you look at it and you think, they can't be totally serious. <laughs> but then... His later excursions in, you know, religious stuff. No, no, it's for this is for real. And of course, irony of ironies, there are more laughs in this than anywhere else in this episode. Thanks to that wonderful performance of comical intensity <laughs> from Jazz Coleman. Mm. Um, I mean, he is self-evidently ridiculous with his sort of crazy googly eyes and his tortured grimaces you know it's the way he clutches his own head as though the sheer intensity of the content uh, was just explosive and at any second it could go off to shower the audience in fragments of brain and bone um but i mean that's all common enough in rock music but he takes this so much further mm. than anyone else ever thought they could get away with and every time the music reaches a crescendo, uh, he strikes that Freddie Mercury pose at yeah, like the yeah, front yeah. of the Dominion Theatre <laughs> with like his fist up and spread legs. And it's like he's looked at himself and thought, blimey, I sort of kind of look a bit like a fascist. I'll tell you what, I'll dress like a fascist. <laughs> and it's all he needs is some mirrored shades mm. and, you know, the a tooth of one of your family members on his key ring. You know. <laughs> but he gets away with all of it, just about, uh, for three reasons. One, he's authentically a bit scary. Two, and this is perhaps not unconnected to one, he appears to really, really believe it. Mm. And three, he does it in a way that's compatible with pop music. Like, he doesn't just stand there expecting us to take his word for it, that Mm. he's in terrible pain. He gives us an entertaining performance of it. And, of course, his name's Jeremy, and he's a bit posh, and he's from Cheltenham. And he is a massive cornball, but he's not a fake. Mm. I mean, there's nothing wrong with being a fake if you can fake it excitingly, especially if your fake is more interesting than your truth. But if you're not just a fake, you can always get away with that little bit more. You can get away with being that little bit more ridiculous. Mm. And... You know, I don't give a toss about Killing Joke or any of this 80s pumped-up thundercloud rock, you know, all of which was happening in the wake of bloody U2, whether these bands would like to admit it or not. Yeah, definitely, man. There's a definite U2 influence here, isn't it? Yeah. But it's like the U2 have shown bands like Killing Joke, it is how you have a hit. Right. Without compromising yourself. But I quite like this record at the time, Mm. and I think I like it even more now because it's a, a decent catchy pop single with a good doomy gimmick Mm. right it works on that level 
um, which I don't think any of their previous records have. It's like the horror bags of pop music, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, the only thing you need to know here is that just before he starts doing his 15th century lunatic in prison eyes, <laughs> he visibly glances around to check which camera yes. he should be mm. performing it to. And good for him, you know what I mean? We're going to talk about Jazz Coleman all through this uh, dissection of the song because the rest of the band are just well Kenny, aren't they? <laughs> very much yeah, so. I mean, you, you so. could have flown in all the Kens in Dead or Alive and put them behind Jazz Coleman. You wouldn't have noticed. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the, the obvious one that you just want to point and sneer at is the guitar player, mm. obviously. Mm. But I think I hate the bassist more because he looks like... He looks like he was created by a neural network that's been shown every episode of Top of the Pops from the previous 12 months and then told to design a bassist. You know what I mean? He's just, <laughs> and also, he has the impressively gothic but slightly unfortunate name of Paul Raven, which, yes. alas, he doesn't just share with the 1990s West Bromwich Albion defender. No. <laughs> and, strangely enough, Paul Raven... Um, he has one sleeve rolled up and one sleeve rolled down, and I don't know why. Um, <laughs> it perhaps helps him. Perhaps he's on drugs. Perhaps, perhaps. But it's weird with Jazz because, you know, he's one of those figures where the myths are often sort of so preposterous, but you've heard them in sort of piecemeal fashion. You, you sort of disbelieve them before realising, finding out that they're true, you know, that he's like official composer and residence of the Prague Symphony Orchestra and things like that. <laughs> you know, but th- yeah. these are all true. The, the man who ran off to the Sahara to avoid supporting the cult, you know, um, it, 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 it's just all a bit bizarre. With Everything I've heard about Jazz Coleman for music journalist colleagues in particular should probably put me off him, but I kind of admire his, yeah, it's just persistent commitment to nuttiness, and ahead of his time in terms of conspiracy theorising as well, mm. um, I would argue. I can believe that. I mean, there's a particularly Melody Maker reference with, with him when he delivered a, a load of live maggots to our uh, reception oh, yeah. desk back in the day. And I mean, Did this will he? have resonances for Taylor. It was, it was actually Marcia on the desk. Uh, so you yeah. can imagine what that was like. But, it, <laughs> but um, you know, he held up a pair. He, he, he was actually being interviewed, I think, by Neil Perry at the time for, for a different magazine. Um, and uh, part of the story became that he went to a bait shop and bought a load of live maggots, turned up at MM's reception desk, held up a pair of scissors in a cross, um, chanted some Latin, plunged the scissors into the liver um, through the maggot center everywhere and scarpered. You know, things like this that you kind of hear as, that can't be right, do emerge as true. <laughs> as, as when he, I think Killing Joke once gaffer taped a journalist to the speakers as they sound checked. They, they had a real oh, kind of hostility towards journalists. A, a mutual friend of me, Taylor and Pricey, is actually, and a kind of mutual writing hero of me, Taylor and Pricey, um, is Chris Roberts. And he oh, remembers, yes. yeah, yes. he remembers early doors in his career having to interview, um, Killing joke and it going incredibly badly, very frosty. They insisted he took his beret off because they called it puffy, and then they insisted on <laughs> insisted on having their photo taken on the phonogram boardroom table. I've you got know. it here. Killing joke decide to stand on the mahogany boardroom table. <laughs> That's right, so that they can be photographed like gods. <laughs> Our own true situation. As the fourth member clambers on and I chew my gloves distractedly, there's an almighty splintering and it cracks. It really cracks. Everyone falls <laughs> arsewards to the floor. <laughs> Somebody says, oh shit, like a guilty schoolboy. Jordi 
fixes me with a stare the first time he's acknowledged my existence in about 10 minutes and states dryly just when things were going so well. (laughs) It's no use. I've long since surrendered to a fit of manly giggles and I'm hugging the wall. Killing Joke have since been banned from EG Records boardroom. Yeah. That's well, terrible, man. The trouble with people like Jazz is that you do always find yourself wanting something really inappropriate and levelling to mm. happen mm. to them. Right, which would never have crossed your mind had they not come on like the Dark Lord of castle no jokes you know what i mean you're just (laughs) waiting for him to step backwards and trip over a runaway pig and land (laughs) in the sitting position with his bottom in a water barrel (laughs) or uh or for a little kid with a a giant lollipop and a sailor suit to call him a stinky bum and (laughs) two-handedly push him off the end of a jetty and then when he walks back out of the sea, there's a massive crab dangling from his nose by one pincer. Can you imagine how thunderous his face would be if that happened? Yeah, always hilarious. I mean, even that... 30, I'm, I'm guessing you've seen that weird 30-second appearance when he's on That's Life. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. Yeah, really bizarre street interview. You know, he's, 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 just, he's just kind of... He's just strolling down the street. But he's unmistakably, even in that, he doesn't pass as a normal person. Or a member of the public. He is clearly a rock star. Oh, yeah, it seems we've done it. Driver Biggin. They should have covered each other's songs. That would have <laughs> been an interesting experiment. It's mental. Like, Doc Cox is standing in the street, and he's he's got some words mm. written down on a big white board. Hello, I'm free. Seems like a nice boy. I'm off on holiday. Anybody like to come camping with me? <laughs> I love you all. And then right, stage yeah. direction, minces away. So the basically Doc Cox is on the street with a BBC camera crew enticing people to act as a comedy homosexual. Yes. And yes. along comes Jazz Coleman and Doc Cox doesn't know who he is. <laughs> and he does it and then walks off. Does he mince? Yeah, and tells Doc Cox to fuck off, I think. I mean, it's just one of those beautifully serendipitous moments. But it's part of the myth. It's part of the legend of Jazz. And and you know I think I think Pricey did something with Jazz Carmen last year and he's still completely unhinged. Mm. Uh, jazz, not Pricey, um, <laughs> which which is reassuring. I mean, you can imagine he's probably right up to his neck in five G Corona conspiracies at the yes. moment. But I mean, he's been doing this for thirty, forty odd years yeah. now, and Killing Joke were always about that. I mean, I, I should really say I, I disagree with the U two influence. To be honest with you, I think late seventies, early eighties Killing Joke, which I love is an influence on you too, which in an odd way then probably feeds back in yeah. a way. But, but you know, uh, when you two started getting good, they, they sounded like early Killing Joke. But yeah, uh, this was, I mean, I think probably the last Killing Joke record anyone should care about, mm. although people do swear down by the later 80s ones. But yeah, I mean, I, I can't stress enough, Jazz Coleman's presence, just seeing somebody with skin my colour being a nutty rock star mm. was fantastic. Um, and crucially... He was unplaceable. That was what was exciting about it, about Jazz Coleman's face and and manner, basically. He was massively unplaceable um, in terms of where the fuck he was from. But it was just that slight spark of familiarity I felt um, with such a great record as well. It was really important. So this is a big moment for me in 85. Yeah, I remember them being interviewed in Smash It when this came out because, (laughs) you know, they were worrying the top 40. Mm. Uh, the only two things I remember about it is one of them threatened to punch the interviewer in the face, which was, uh, <laughs> you know, a novelty in those days. Mm. Um, 
And the other one was there was a quote from Jazz Coleman saying, and I might not get the wording exactly right, but he said, our music is a, is a beautiful music, uh, a unique music, a music exclusively for the 80s. And he may have been right on that, unfortunately. Mm. But, I, yeah, I enjoyed this, if just because it made the cut back to Simon Bates's shiny sausage <laughs> face and TV screen glasses seem really jarring. And if you're going to be a noisy rock band, you have to at least do that. Yeah. And, and Bates, the thing is, when it cuts back to Bates, he, he almost seems apologetic for it. Yes. He, he, he's like, you know, he's not appalled by what he's just seen. Yeah, he's seen it all. Yeah, but he, he, he wants to move on quickly, put it that way. <laughs> so the following week, Love Like Blood jumped five places to number 19, and a week later it got to number 16, its highest position. The follow-up, Kings and Queens, only got to number 58 in April of this year, and they'd have to wait nine years for their next top 40 hit when Millennium got to number 34 in May of 1994, and they split up for the first time two years later. As the tang of chlorinated chicken in pop form still lingers in our mouth, despite the best efforts of Jazz Coleman, now's the time to step away for a bit and come back tomorrow for the final part of this episode. Before I go, though, just want to remind you, we do have an extensive video playlist for every episode of Chart Music, and this one can be found at bit.ly.com slash cmvids52. Or you can just go to the website, or you can look at the link on your video player. Have a look. Have a good nose round 1985. Anyway, my name's Al Needham. They're Taylor Parks and Neil Kulkarner. See you tomorrow. Stay pop crazed. Sharp music. Great big Hello, I'm Chris England, and I'm here to tell you about the Fun Factory podcast, available now on Great Big Owl. Each time, I will be reading a couple of chapters of my novel, The Fun Factory, a historical comedy about the history of comedy, so it will kind of be like a free audiobook, which you can listen to at the gym, or jogging, or at your desk while pretending to do your job, or on the train, without the embarrassment of people seeing you actually reading a book like some kind of swat. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.